Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast. We'd like to thank you for taking a few moments out of your day to listen to what God is doing here in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. We hope today's message will be encouraging and uplifting to you. To learn more about Simple Church, maybe you'd like to be our guest for a service, please visit our website at www.simplechurchohio.com. There you'll find more information about us, location, service times, and even online giving opportunities. And now, here's today's message. So what we're doing today, we'll just continue, is a, a series we started a, lot, a couple weeks ago called Christian Atheists. So if you're unfamiliar or haven't been here, kind of let me, let me back up a little bit and explain what the series is all about. To understand Christian atheists, you need to understand what the word atheist is. Uh, atheist is somebody who believes that God does not exist. And as a result of that, they live their life in a way that reflects that. They, they live a life as if he doesn't exist. Because they don't believe he does. A Christian atheist, though, and by the way, just because somebody is an atheist doesn't make them a bad person. I know plenty of moral, upstanding atheists that are dear friends of mine that I love who are, are incredible parts of, of society and community and are, are, are beautiful people. All right? That doesn't make them a bad person. So just, just, just in case you're a Christian, you're like, well, I don't want to associate with the atheist. Why not? Love them, man. Love them to Jesus. So, uh, but a Christian atheist is somebody who says, I believe in God, but they live their life as if God doesn't exist. And so we've kind of been breaking that down. What are some indications that you are a Christian atheist? In the first week, we talked about how people say they believe in God, but they don't know him. Well, that's an indication that you're a Christian atheist. You're living your life like God doesn't exist. And then last week we talked about people who say, I believe in God, but I don't fear him. I don't have this reverent respect for him. Next week we're going to talk about how we believe in God, but we don't trust him fully. And this week what I'd like to do is talk about how we believe in God, but we don't want to go overboard. In other words, we don't want to be people that others talk about and say, well, there, that, there goes that Jesus freak. There goes that fanatic. There goes that that person that's a crazy Christian. We don't like that label, do we? We don't want to be a crazy Christian. We don't want to be labeled as somebody who's taking the scriptures literally, you know, like they really believe what it says, so they're doing what it says, and we, we don't like those labels. We, we kind of push away from them. We, we believe in God, but we don't want to go overboard. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to preach out of Revelation, which is the end of the book. So if you're reading in your Bibles today, you can flip to the last book of the Bible. It's called Revelation, or the scripture verses will be up on the screen. But let me tell you a little bit about what's happening here in the book of Revelation. Not only does it talk about the end of times, but Jesus wrote seven specific letters to individual churches. And these seven letters are uh, six out of seven of them contain, they, they, the, Jesus starts off with him praising the churches. So there, there's seven specific churches, and he says, to these six of them, hey, you guys are doing really, really great in this area. And then he shifts into a mode of correction. And he does this for those six. But the last church, the church at Laodicea, he doesn't even tell them anything that they're doing good. He just full-on correction mode with these guys. And so that's the letter that we're going to be reading, and it's to that church. And, and let me tell you a little bit about Laodicea. Laodicea was a city that was very wealthy. This was a blessed people. They were people that had so much money that we know from history that 35 years prior to the, the writing of this letter, that there was an earthquake that leveled Laodicea, and they had so much wealth, so much money, that they were able to quickly rebuild the city, 
All right? And so that's how blessed these people were. They had huge theaters and stadiums. They had uh, lavish public baths. They had shopping centers. It's kind of like a modern day uh, uh, Las Vegas. You know how Las Vegas has all this cool stuff. They got these shopping centers. They got roller coasters running in and out of buildings and all the amazing shows and stuff that you would want to see, right? The, the lights that draw you in. And this is pretty much what Laodicea was like, all right? And so this is what Jesus says to this wealthy and blessed group of people. He says in Revelation 3, uh, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. Now pause right there. As you're reading through Scripture, I think we have a tendency to just kind of read it you know, like real monotone, read it as we are, right? So here, this is how we typically read verses like this. You ready? I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. God, I wish I was doing something else. And I wish you were either one or the other. It's lost its passion. It's lost its meaning, hasn't it? Because we tend to read it like we are, but we, we really need to read it and understand that the author implies something here. He means something. In fact, he uses an exclamation point. That Jesus talking here says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. He's like yelling. Jesus is lit. He's upset. All right, back to it. Like, this guy's crazy. Mm-hmm. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's a horrible combination. I wouldn't like any one of those things. Skip to verse 20, and he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So let's kind of break it down. What's Jesus saying? Well, he says, I know your deeds. Basically, he's saying, I know what you believe based on how you've acted. I know what you believe based on what you do, right? It's really obvious. And we can, I can tell you what each one of you believes based on how you act. In fact, I can show your priorities just by looking at your calendar and your checkbook. Right? Jesus says, I know your deeds. And he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. How many of you guys, and this is audience participation, don't worry, I'm not going to have you speak out loud or do anything crazy. It's just going to be a lift of the hand, okay? So everybody play with me. How many of you guys like coffee? Oh, fantastic. Hands down. How many of you guys like Hot coffee. Fantastic. How many of you guys like iced coffee? Oh, all right. Now, how many of you guys like room temperature coffee? Well, there's two of you, three of you. <laughs> Look, let me tell you something. There is not a market for room temperature coffee. You do not go into Starbucks or any other coffee joint Yes, I'll take some room temperature coffee, please. One that's been sitting out for two or, two or three hours. That'll be fine. What? No, no, they, they, they brew the coffee hot or they brew it cold. Or they brew it hot and pour it on ice or they just brew it hot and serve it hot. There is no room temperature. You don't get to buy it that way. It's just not right. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about this room temperature, that it's an undesirable kind of thing. 
It's either hot or it's cold. That, I would rather you be hot or cold. And he's using this particular kind of language because the people of Laodicea would have understood this. They would have understood because of their location, it was a little challenging for them to get water piped into the, to the city. So there's hot springs and cold springs, and they wanted the water there as quick as possible so that it remained cold or it remained hot. They had reasons for this because they wanted to be able to serve drinks at their festivals, their, their worship ceremonies. So before you would go and offer this, your sacrifice that you brought to God, you would, you would, you would um, search your heart and you would have a drink. And so they would serve the hot drink or they would serve a cold drink. Now, here's the thing. The people at the front of the line at these festivals got the hot or the cold drink based on what they were serving that day. But the people at the back of the line, they didn't. And the people, they, they got something that was room temperature because they didn't have refrigerators. They, they couldn't serve it to you cold. Like it, if it wasn't cold from the, from, from the fount, then you were just, it was, you were getting room temperature. And Jesus is making a comparison here because the people at the front of the line that got the hot or the cold drinks were wealthy. They were the distinguished people of the community. They were the nobles. They were the important people. Right at the front of the line. But the people at the back, the ones that were not honorable, they, they, they got room temperature. And so Jesus is using language that this church would understand, that this city would understand, because it was common to them. They understood. Uh, I wish you were either hot or cold, not lukewarm. Nobody likes lukewarm. That's a dishonorable position. I love that. I love that God in his grace would speak to us in a way that we need to understand. And this is why he says neither hot nor cold, or he says, I wish you were hot or cold, instead you're lukewarm. Verse 16, he continues, he says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Anybody here have a weak stomach? I have a, a, a fairly weak stomach. Now, I don't mean the kind of stomach that you get like when you've, you've gotten food poisoning or you've eaten something that just doesn't agree with you, you know, because when that happens, I mean, it's not just your stomach that, that's weak. It's everything else, right? Your body is completely rejecting stuff like that, and it's coming out every hole. You know what I'm saying? It's plug it, plug it, plug it, plug it. You got to just, if it's your first time here, I'm not even going to apologize. I'm just going to say welcome to Simple Church where we talk about vomit and diarrhea. That's it, all right? But we're real up in here. So, all right. But I, I don't, I, when I get sick, I do not like to vomit. It's not something I like to do, even if I know it would make me feel better. Anybody ever been there before? You, you know it would make you feel better, but you just don't want to do it. It's like, no, my excuse is I worked hard to make that and to eat it. It's mine. <laughs> if I paid for it, that's a whole nother level, you know? But anyway, so I, I, I don't like to vomit. I, I, I just don't. But that's not even what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I don't like that, that I have a weak stomach. I learned that as an adult, uh, probably in the last five or six years, I, I discovered that I have a weak stomach. I, I never had a weak stomach growing up. I could look at gross things all day long. No problem. But I, I don't know what changed, what shifted in me, but I can't see gross things now. It just, because I just, I just, it just makes me want to, you know. Now, I've always had this thing where I can't stand like certain textures in my mouth, like mayonnaise or sour cream, biting into a burrito that's filled with sour cream and just, just squirting. I can't. I just can't. That's just an immediate like projectile kind of thing. I, I will spew it from my mouth, right? 
But, but I found that because I have like a vivid imagination that something that I've seen at one point in time, that if I just try to tell the story about it, it'll make me sick. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? Like you can remember a time you were sick and you get sick again. Like it's not even happening. It's just like it's just happening in your head. Am I the only crazy one? There's one. I heard one yes right here. Oh, there's a few. Oh, thank God. Oh, oh. okay. So... Uh, for example, and it's funny how these things play out because sometimes, I don't know, the, everybody's using this word triggered nowadays, but I, I was triggered at one point in time a couple weeks here at church because of one of my previous memories. Uh, so I saw this, this show. It's kind of like a, a dare kind of television show. And uh, what they did was they took a really, really big guy. And um, I'm going to try to get through this. I could not get through it first service. <laughs> uh, they took a really big guy and they put him in a sweatsuit. You know those sweatsuits that you can work out in to like drop poundage like before you weigh in, you know, and or, or, or for, for wrestling and stuff. Wrestlers use them. They're really dangerous. You can get dehydrated really bad, but, but people still wear them and you can still buy them. And well, they put this guy in a, in a clear one of those, right, so that you could see. And the sweat is just pouring. <coughs> the sweat is just pouring off of his body. See what I'm suffering for you? <coughs> the sweat is pouring off of his body. They've got a tube attached to the back of the suit. And it's all, <coughs> it's all collecting. It's, <coughs> it's, going, it's going down into a cup. Okay, and then somebody had to pick up the cup and drink it. Whoo! I'm not even pretending. People that know me know I'm not even pretending right now. Oh, I'm all watery. I need a second. Hang on. So here's how that played out. I have this... Anytime I think of a sweatsuit, the sweatsuit cocktail, I think, is what they called it. Do not YouTube that stuff, man. That is a mess. Anytime I see a sweatsuit, I think of that, and I immediately go there, and I'm just... A few weeks ago, I was here, and somebody who loves me and did not know that I, I would do that bought a sweatsuit. Because y'all know my word for the year is health, right? And I'm working on, on, on getting healthier and fit and strong, and so... They brought this to me and said, here, I, I, I think you'll, you'll get some good use out of this. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. Gave a hug and then ran to my office as soon as possible to put this thing down and get it out of my life, you know, like off of my hands because, oh, oh, dear Lord. Why do I tell you that? Well, so we can have a little fun this morning, but also because this word spit that Jesus used here. If you look at the word, it's, he, it, it's uh, excuse me, it's Greek. And, uh, and it translates out to spit, so like spit. But, but it more accurately translates to spew. It's, it's a vomit. And Jesus is like, hey, because of the way you're living your life, this lukewarm way that you're living your life, I'm about to spew. It makes me sick. I'm rejecting this. Completely and supremely is what he says. He says this about people that have no passion in their life for him, people that lack compassion, people that don't care about their relationship with God are apathetic, they're comfortable in, in their current pursuit, they're not growing in their relationship with God. And he says, I can't tolerate that, I reject it, I, it makes me want to vomit. 
Now, let me ask you, how many of you guys know what an oxymoron is? You know what an oxymoron is? All right, so an oxymoron, if you don't, is two words that, when used in conjunction with each other, contradict each other. Just two words we put together, all right? So things like act naturally, genuine imitation, tight slacks, jumbo shrimp, clearly confused, living dead, and found missing. These are all oxymorons. They don't make sense, right? And yet we use them in our, in our everyday lives. Well, one of the greatest oxymorons throughout history is lukewarm Christian. They contradict each other. What Jesus is saying about lukewarmness, they cannot exist together. You cannot be a Christ follower and be lukewarm. He's saying, I don't want that. I reject that. You say, all right, Aaron, I hear that. But so what? That's not me. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it is. And so I'm here to help you this morning. I'm here to help you maybe see maybe it is. Because, look, I don't want you to be repulsed by the idea of repentance or the idea that maybe you need to ask God to forgive you and change some of your ways. But honestly, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, isn't it? It's his grace that gets us there. It's a beautiful thing for us to discover a way in which we are offensive to our Father and to change that, right? And so I'm gonna go through seven qualities of what I think lukewarm Christians look like. And, and trust me, there are probably a lot more, but these would be a top seven. And so as you listen to this, you're likely going to look across your life and say, oh, that's them, that's them, I see them. But it's also likely you'll see yourself. And if you do, that's okay. Just stick with me till the end. There's no condemnation here. I'm not yelling at you. I ain't mad at you. God's not mad at you. But if you hear yourself in here, just stick with me to the end and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Number one, first quality of a lukewarm Christian is that they crave acceptance from people more than acceptance from God. They crave acceptance from people more than acceptance from God. Paul, in writing a letter to Timothy, his spiritual son, he says this. He said, you know what? He said, men in the end times, which is today's day, will be lovers of themselves. And if you think about it, we're in a very selfie-driven society, aren't we? Everything's about me. It's like we don't know, when we no longer get a picture of that thing, we get a picture of me with that thing behind me, right? We include and inject ourselves into everything, and we do all of that so we can post it on social media, and people can do what? Like it. And if enough people don't like it, you get hurt. And you even make sure that the picture that you're going to post is one that everybody will like. So you will take that picture a hundred times to make sure that your double chin is not seen or that it is the best angle and that the light is just right. We are driven to do things that please other people and not God. We're, driv we're driven by ourselves. I want you to like me. I'll change who I am so that you like me. I'll dress the way you do. I'll talk the way you do. I'll listen to the music you like. Even though I like country music, I'll switch. That's not true. I don't, it's not true about me. I just, I'll be just like you so that you like me, so that you accept me. We're not, we're not concerned about whether God likes us or accepts us or whether he's pleased with us. And Jesus spoke about this kind of culture. He says, hey, woe to you. Now, woe is, like a, is almost like a pronunciation of a curse. You understand that? Woe to you. Cursed are you. Hey, look out. The bus is getting ready to hit you. Get out of the road. 
Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Why? Because if everybody's talking good about you, it's likely that you're not following Jesus very well. Because in all honesty, when you do, when you do things the way he tells you to do things, it brings ridicule. It brings rejection. It brings people that will unfriend you on Facebook and you won't understand why. We get down to your world and where it's at. That, that's what it means. It means rejection. And we don't want that. We want to be accepted. Many of us are living for the approval of man instead of from a place of approval with God. It's a very different behavior, very different lifestyle. Lukewarm Christians crave approval of man over God. Second thing is they rarely share their faith in Christ. They rarely share their faith in Christ. Why? There's probably lots of reasons. They all come down to a summary of fear. They're scared, scared of rejection, scared of loss of relationship. They're, they're, they're scared that people will think they're weird and distance themselves from them. They're, they're ultimately afraid. Or they don't really believe that Jesus is the way and that he's the answer to all of our issues. They don't really believe that Jesus is that great. They don't really have a transformed life. They don't really think it's the best thing ever, following Christ. They really don't believe that because if they did, I think that they'd potentially pray about how to deal with those fears in their lives. Like, God, I'm scared to share my faith with my friend. I'm afraid he'll reject me. I don't want to lose that relationship. I've known him for 20 years. Help me overcome that fear so I can share your love. Help me, help me overcome this fear. Help me care more what you think about than what others think about. We, if we really believed it, we would share it. Because the things that we believe in, we share them. We post about them, we tweet them, we talk about them, we sit there on the clock and tell our friends about our favorite television shows and the best restaurants in town, things that we believe in, things that have impacted us, things that made us go, wow, we share. How do you all know that I love Chipotle? Because I tell you almost every Sunday. I love Chipotle, I love Jesus and I love Chipotle in that order, right? And I love them very differently, but I do love them. I share, I believe in it. I take people there. I love it. I have joy in that. And I, love, I have joy in connecting people with Christ in this spiritual journey that God has for everybody. I believe in it. My prayer is I talk about Jesus more than Chipotle. But Jesus said, if you confess me before others, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. So if you're willing to tell other people about me, now you don't have to preach at somebody. It doesn't mean you have to be a preacher and stand on a stage or even tell someone, you're going to hell. What it means is that you love them and you share Christ and how he's impacted your life. The Bible says we'll become witnesses for him. In other words, what have you seen? What have you witnessed? It's that simple. What have you seen him do for you? Sharing your faith. He says, confess me before men and I'll confess you before my father. But if you don't confess me, before men, he said, there's no way I'm going to tell dad I'm with you. You hear me? When it comes to heaven, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. Better believe that. Number three, lukewarm Christians rationalize their sins. We rationalize our sins. And here's, here's a tough word. I think because of how sin has been pounded in our head over years by preachers who preach fire and brimstone and you're going to hell where the worm never dies and there's gnashing of teeth, because we've done this for so long, 
That when we hear the word sin, it's a repulsive word to us, and so we kind of push away and say, nope, they're judgmental. They're hateful Christians. They called how I'm living sinful. But you understand that sin is really just missing God's best for our lives. Can I take a moment to define it? That's why I do every time I mention the word sin, because I can see you, you all just kind of cringe. It's a culture. Look, the enemy of your soul is not stupid. If he can change what a word means, he will, and he has. That's why I fight it by telling you what it really means. God has a better plan for you than what you've got for yourself. When we miss it, it's sin, period. Got it? But what we do with our sin is we rationalize our sins. Today, we're in a culture where we do several things to do that. We, we rebrand our sin. It's not adultery. It's an affair. Like we're all in prom dresses in a tuxedo. It's an affair to remember. Just call it what it is. It's not pornography, it's adult entertainment. It's not profanity, it's adult language. Like, what are we telling our kids? Hey, listen, guys, you don't get to watch porn or use the F-bomb until you're an adult, but this is how we all uh, talk, and this is what we watch. I want to unwind, and I'm going to sit down and turn on some porn. <laughs> We've rebranded. We're not calling sin, sin, and then, and then of course, we just justify we, or we justify us and we say, all right, look, what I'm doing isn't as bad. I mean, do you know my sister? Do you know how she behaves? Do you know my neighbor? Have you seen my coworker, how he's living his life? I'm not as bad. There's always somebody that's worse to, uh, than us in their behavior, so we can justify our sin compared to theirs. But you're comparing to the wrong person, by the way. It's between you and Jesus, right? And that's where you see the real thing. Then we say, hey, who are you to judge me? We don't want somebody to judge us. You, you can't talk, talk to me about my sin. You're no better than me. Who are you? Or, or we say, look, I'm not hurting anyone. How is my sin hurting you? Look, I didn't have an affair. It's just porn that I'm watching. I, I, well, but it, they're not going to miss it. It's just a few dollars out of the cash register every week. It's just this one red swing line stapler that I'm taking. They won't miss it. Somebody will. We justify it. Or we say, it's my body, it's my choice. We rationalize. We rationalize our sins away. Number four, lukewarm Christians think more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. Paul said this in Philippians. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's saying that my life is a life to be lived for Christ. I'm supposed to becoming more, be becoming more like him. That's the life. And to die is gain. Because to be absent from the body, from this earth, is to be present with him. He valued his relationship with Jesus so much, knowing where is Jesus? He's in heaven. To be absent from this life means to be present with him, with our heavenly father. But we don't talk like that, do we? We, we don't believe that. We go, no, 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 no. Everything here is awesome. I don't want to die. I'm so consumed with what I have to get. I'm so consumed with my career, with my paycheck, with doing good on the job, with raising good kids. What would my kids do without me? If I died, who's going to raise them? We have no trust that if God chose to remove you from this earth, that he has a plan for them. And so we cling to this life. Nope, I want to be 105 and in diapers. That's the life for me. 
We, we, we love this earth and the things of this earth and this world more than we value heaven. Number five, we only turn to God when we need something. So lukewarm Christians, we only turn to God when we need something. See, we always, all of us, on our spiritual journey, it begins with knowing God. And so many of us have said yes to Jesus and began a relationship with him. We've opened up our lives to him. But what happens? A lot of us come to Christ through brokenness. We come to him through pain. We come to him through addiction. We come to him through loss. And what happens? He heals our hearts, gives us a new beginning and forgiveness, and life is good. The job gets better as we follow Christ. The marriage, the relationships get better as we do. The money situation takes care of itself. It gets better. And we forget God. We don't talk to him anymore. We don't pray anymore. We don't read our Bibles anymore. Because we don't need him. Everything's good. But the second everything goes bad, we pull that God thing right out of our tool belt and go, God, I need your help. My baby's sick in the hospital. The doctors don't know what to do. I need your help. God, I just lost my job. I got nothing. No, most of us don't even talk to God when that happens. We go stand in the unemployment line first before we talk to God. God, my marriage is a mess. My relationships are a mess. I'm socially, relationally, and spiritually a mess. Then we find it convenient to talk to God. We don't talk to him otherwise. We don't have a relationship with our heavenly father that is loving. No, what we have is a relationship with a cosmic vending machine. where We push these buttons and he's supposed to give us what we want. We seek God's hand and not his face. What he can do for us and not who he is. Sign of a lukewarm Christian is we only turn to God when there's something we need. Number six is that we give whenever it is convenient. We decide that whenever it's convenient for us is when we will give, whenever it benefits us. And I mean of our finances, of our time, of our talents, in any way that you can give. We only give when it's convenient. We only give when someone else is looking and it benefits us. Whether they're going to say, eh, isn't he a nice guy? Look what he's doing for them. Oh, did you see how much money he threw in the offering today? Did you know he paid their way to the mission trip? We do it when it's good for us, when it benefits us, or we do it when it doesn't cost us anything. Like, look, I'm willing to give of my extra. I'm not actually going to sacrifice anything to be able to give, to help out, to help a friend in need, to love on someone. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hold any cash in reserve so that someday if somebody comes into my life, I can be a blessing to them. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spend it all on me because it's all mine anyway, isn't it? It's mine. We learned that word from like, from like being a little kid. Mine. We sound like the seagulls on Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. It's all mine. This is mine. You don't get to tell me what to do with it. It's mine. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give up my cable TV for a couple months so that I can be a blessing to somebody else who's in need. I don't want to do that. I don't want to rearrange my life so that I can get out of debt and honor God with my finances. I don't want to do that. It's all mine. Okay. What we need to realize it's actually all God's. And that everything you have, right down to the very breath in your lungs at this moment, is a gift he has given you. He's the creator of the universe, and all of it in it is his. And everything that you have is because he gave it to you to steward You are not an owner of it. That includes your finances. That includes your treasure, your talent, and your time. 
But when we're lukewarm, we say, well, this is mine, and I'm going to do with it what I want. It's all me. We go, how much do I have to give to make you shut up, Aaron? Not much versus a loving heart that isn't responding to a loving God that says, how much can I give? Where can I let go of some things in my life so that I can be more generous? We give when it's convenient. The seventh way, the seventh uh, quality of a lukewarm Christian is that they're not much different from the world. They're not much different from anybody else in the world. You look just like them. You walk and talk just like them. You listen to the same music they listen to. You, listen, you watch the same movies they watch. You raise your kids the same way that the world raises their kids. The language you use is the same language of the world. You approach your finances the same way the rest of the world approaches their finances. And you get divorced just like the rest of the world. This is what we do. We don't look any different from them. We have a comfy Christianity, not a conforming Christianity. See, the whole point is so that you and I can be made into the image of Christ. Why? Because that's when we glorify God. When we look like him, we glorify and honor our Father in heaven. But that's not the Christianity we want. We don't want to do that. We don't want to conform. We want to do things our way, and we want to look like everybody else as we do it. We don't want to stick out. We want all of what God has for us, but we don't want to follow what he wants us to do. We want enough of Jesus to keep us out of heaven or keep us out of hell and get us into heaven, but we, we don't want so much of it that we go overboard and are full of spiritual stuff. We want the benefits of what Christ did without conforming to who he is. And Jesus said this behavior is lukewarm behavior. He says, I can't stomach it. I will spew you out of my mouth. Now look, I'm not standing up here on a platform talking down to you. I hope you understand that I'm on the same level as you. Just because I've been given office or a calling of pastor does not make me better than any of you in this room. I'm not. And so I'm not condemning you. You know why I know what a lukewarm Christian looks like? Because I've been one. I've walked with Jesus for the majority of my life, and I have been on the ups and downs of that relationship. And many of you, if you're being honest, you have too. You start off with the race well. You start off strong, full of passion for God. Man, you read your Bible, you're talking to God on a regular basis. You're at church every Sunday morning and things start going well, you just kind of slack off. Man, I, I was there, I, even, I was such a, when I was younger, man, I was on fire for Jesus is what they called it, right? I wore the WWJD slap bracelets. I had the t-shirt that said Lord's Gym on it. Come on, I got any old school Christians in here know what I'm talking about? I understand this is 20 years old kind of stuff, but yeah, it's 20 years back. I said Jesus Freak first service, and that's a 20-year-old song, and nobody knew what that was. Anyway. I was on fire, man. Everything about me said Christian. Scream Christianity. I read my Bible and I spent my time with God, but things were going well. And I just kind of slacked. I actually got to a point where I separated my relationship with God because, I don't know, I was offended and hurt, lost sight of who he was. But even in returning to him, there's been ups and downs. There's been times when I would identify and say I've been lukewarm, even as a pastor. You see, I thought being a pastor when I was younger and getting into ministry, I knew I had a call in my life to be a pastor since I was 16. I'm 38 now. I've been a pastor for four years. So that tells you how long I ran from it, but I've known. 
And I thought being a pastor meant like when I went into my office, the holy glory kind of God was going to rest. It'd be like smoky like it is up here during worship, you know, in my office. I thought there was going to be music that played, you know, all the time, everywhere that I went that was like angelic and spiritual. I thought, man, like I was going to, my Bible might float up off its desk and I might even walk on water because I was that holy, you know. That's why I, I, I just thought ministry was glamorous. I thought it was going to be amazing, and none of that stuff has happened, just so you know. I thought, I thought getting, becoming a pastor was going, to be, was going to be easy, but I discovered it was, it's a job. There's, there's a business side to running a church that I, I was not prepared for or ready for mentally that I didn't understand. I, I thought it was all going to be ministry and hallelujah and healing people and amazing stuff. And it just, it, I, was, I, I, was, I was wrong. It's a job. I thought everybody, every Christian that I encountered was going to be an amazing experience, that everybody was going to be loving and likable. And that's just not true. Y'all are real people just like me. You got issues. Some of those issues are hard. I think everybody's lovable, but not everybody's likable. Oh, you can't handle that kind of honesty this morning? I love you. Seriously. I've been there. I've been in the ups and downs, even as a pastor. Some of my Bible study became about preparing for a message and not about a relationship with God. I was probably praying more publicly than I was privately, and that says a lot. I've been on that roller coaster. I was a full-time pastor and a part-time follower of Christ. So I'm not talking down to you. I'm right there with you. Some of you are here today. You're a full-time whatever it is. You're a full-time employee. You're a full-time mom or dad. You're a full-time spouse. You're a full-time ex and a part-time follower of Christ. You're part-time. And Jesus calls this lukewarm. He says you're neither hot, you're not cold, you're comfortable, and you're complacent. And I'll be really honest, it's easy to be a Christian here in the United States. It's really easy because it's not everywhere like this. But here it's so easy to be a Christian that it's actually difficult to be a true one. Does that make sense? There's no resistance. Nobody was, nobody was threatening you as you walked into church this morning. You didn't actually have to make a bold declaration that you were Christ. Because see, in other countries, to make that declaration that you, that you are a Christ follower could cost you life, limb, your family could be slaughtered in front of you, you could lose your job, your status in community, your home, your wealth, everything could go the second you identify with Christ in other countries. Everything. Gives you some real pressure to decide whether you're actually in or whether you're out. You know where you stand in other countries with Jesus. There's no on the fence. You're in or out. And I would say the pressure and the persecution that comes with it makes it easier. Though that's hard, though it's hard to be a Christian, it is easier to be a true one. Because those that are around you identifying as Christ followers are all in. They're all in. But it isn't like that here. And this letter that Jesus wrote to Laodicea, 
in Revelation, it could have just as easily been about us. We are wealthy. We are blessed. Everything's going well for us. We are lukewarm. We're comfy and complacent. We're lukewarm and loving it. We have the big theaters and the stadiums and the big shopping centers. Because we have all this, we we don't feel like we need God. We, We don't feel that way. Again, Jesus to them in verse 17, he said, you say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And he's talking about a church. I've never, ever read anywhere where Jesus referred to his followers this way. He's speaking to a church, though, because there are people in the church that are lukewarm. And he calls them wretched. They have worldly wealth, but they are spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus said, if you're lukewarm, this is you. So what do we do? Well, as I close, I just have some final comments for you. What do we do? And right now, I'm aware that the Holy Spirit may be tugging on your heart. Maybe you feel a little uncomfortable in your seat right where you sit. Maybe not. But if the Holy Spirit's pulling on your heart and has been since I've been talking, I want to just encourage you to follow that lead, to to, to follow him with complete abandon, because here's what we do. Open the door of your heart to Jesus and he'll come in. Look, I love that Jesus gives us a very clear picture of what he will accept and what he will not. And that he describes the scene for us and says, hey, I, this is who you are and I'm about to spew you out of your mouth, but we get to, that, that's the end of it, of verse 17, but we get to the beginning of verse 20 and it reads like this. There's redemption that comes with his truth. This is grace and truth. Remember, this is always Jesus. This is always Jesus. He said, here I am exclamation point. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And see, you don't even understand the beauty of this statement. Like, okay, I'm going to welcome Jesus into my heart. That's nice. Jesus didn't say, I want in so that I can correct you and yell at you. He didn't want to come in and tell you what a horrible person you are. Jesus doesn't want to come kick your teeth in or flip your tables over and tell you that you're terrible. He doesn't want to read you a list of all the bad things you've done. You already know that. No, what does Jesus want to do? He says, open the door and I'll come in and we'll eat together. He says, I just want to fellowship with you. I want to sit down and have a meal with you. I want to relate with you. I want to associate myself with you. And I want you to know me in the way that I already know you. This is all God wants for you. In fact, your spiritual journey begins there. You knowing God. Intimately. Jesus says, open the door. And I'll come in and we'll eat together. We'll get a cup of coffee. We'll fellowship. Look, I know one other dude who did that in the Bible. There's actually been several, but there's one guy that stands out. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, right? He's one guy that the Jews think he's a Jewish guy who betrayed his countrymen by becoming a tax collector for the Romans. He's considered a dog among his people. And yet, when he sees Jesus, Jesus says, hey, come on, let's go to your house and I'm going to have dinner with you. We don't know what they said at the dinner table, but we know that Jesus, because he chose to sit with the guy, the guy stands up in the middle of the dinner table and is completely transformed. He says, I'll give back all that I've stolen. 
changed. This is what Jesus desires for you. He wants to have dinner with you. You don't have to change who you are. You don't have to say a Hail Mary or I'm sorry 30 times. You don't have to be different today. All you have to do is open that door and let Jesus in. He handles the rest. He handles the rest. Because when he comes in, you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are freed from the guilt and shame of your past. You are made a new creation is what the Bible calls you. You're made brand new. If you'll hear his voice, he'll come in. What about those of you who have already opened the door? And you say, well, Jesus is already in my life, but I've become complacent and comfortable. What do I do? Let me tell you what you do. It's quite simple. When I come home, my kids come greet me. When I walk in the door, I'm a big booming dude. It's quite obvious when I come in the door. And my kids will come and greet me, hug me, say, hey, Dad, how was your day? I say, great, how was yours? And we sit and talk, we fellowship. But when my kids, my kids are, are 15 and 13. But when my kids were little, do you know what my kids did? The second I hit the door, it did not matter what they were doing. It didn't matter what they were caught in. It didn't matter if they were playing a game, watching a movie, eating a meal. It did not matter. They dropped what they were doing and ran as fast as they could to get to dad and tackle me. Daddy's home. If you become comfortable and complacent, my challenge for you is to drop what it is you're doing and run. Turn from whatever it is you've been caught in. Take whatever has had your attention that's caused you to be complacent and comfortable in this relationship with God. Maybe it's television. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a second job. I have no idea what that is for you. But just leave it behind and go run into that. You say, why would I tell you to do that? Well, Jesus tells us to do that. And the disciples said, how do we pray? How do we approach God? He says, pray, Father. But do you know what the word was that he used? Abba, right? We think, oh, well, that's translated. That means father or dancing queen. We're not really sure. But but you know that the word Abba is not actually the word for father in the language? No, it's a slang. It's like saying pops or daddy-o. It's slang. And here's what it was. Abba was the way that a child would actually pronounce the word for father. It became a term of endearment. They couldn't say the word, so they'd say, Abba. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray, Abba, Father. In other words, approach God like a child with complete abandon. If you've grown cold and your love's grown cold, run with complete abandon. Run to him, because when you do, when you embrace him, you'll find that he changes you. You draw close to him, he draws close to you. And when you know him, you crave acceptance from him. You share him whenever and wherever possible. You long to be with him eternally in heaven because you know this world is not your home. You give radically, generously, and fanatically. You seek God's face, not just his hand, faithfully. You grieve over your sinfulness and repent often. And you're different. You're set apart than the rest of the world. You become what we call the shiny. And because of this, there's no part of you that would cause God to spew you out of his mouth. There's no, no offense in you at all. 
because you're all in. You're overboard for God. And this, my friends, is the only reasonable response to the illogical and irrational love that God has for you and I. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that is often difficult for us to hear. I thank you, Jesus, that you're not willing to stand by that and watch us, watch us struggle. You've stepped into our lives and you're doing what one pastor has called meddling in our affairs. But you're calling us to a better life. You're calling us to greater life, a full and fulfilled life. Lord, I pray that, that we would see it as such. We know that we're like that church at Laodicea. And we ask you, Lord, to help us remove things that have distracted us from our love for you. I pray that you would reveal our lukewarmness in the areas that we are as such. I pray that as we repent, Lord, that you would restore us. And that we would know a fuller and a fulfilled life as a result of it. Jesus, this is what you have for us. Rekindle that love in our hearts, Lord. Set a fire down in our souls. Help us, Lord. As we continue to pray, I'm well aware that there are some of you here that you're not even on a spiritual journey yet. And you're hearing how much God loves you. And it doesn't make sense. And you're right. God's love for you is irrational. No rational human being sends their child to be put to death for someone else. It's illogical because it just doesn't make sense. Why does he care so much about us? The creator of the universe. Why do our lives matter when you consider the great expanse of it all? And yet, God does care. He loves you. He loves you dearly. God isn't just loving. The Bible says that God is love. That he cannot be separated from it. And as such, you can never be separated from him or his love. It doesn't matter how far away you've walked from him. It doesn't matter how long you've fought a relationship with him. He is ready to love you and receive you. So today is your opportunity. If you want to receive Jesus, you want to receive God's forgiveness, his grace, if you want to begin a relationship with him through his son, Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you'd like to be included on that prayer, would you just let me know that you're here by slipping up your hand? Would you do that now? Would you say, Aaron, that's me today. I'm going to make a decision today. I'm going to make a shift today. I'm going to follow Jesus today. I may not know what that looks like. I don't know how to fully do it. But I trust if I make that decision, he'll show me how. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up? Nobody's looking around. I don't, I'm not going to embarrass you. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks. You can put your hands down. Church, can we pray this prayer? Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for living a perfect and sinless life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for your love. I give you my life. Will you give me yours? Show me how to live for you and I'll spend every day doing that. Be Lord of my life today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.